The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 3rd, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. For a week now on Twitter, it's dying down a little bit, but there was this hashtag, Muslim apologies was trending. Quick backstory, it's a reaction to another campaign, not in my name, where you say, well, I'm Muslim, but these Muslim extremists, these ISIL guys, it's not in my name. I can understand why that gets to be a bummer, being asked constantly to apologize for this. I mean, if I was always asked to apologize for like Joey Buttafuoco, Italian guys from Long Island, I'd get sick of it after a while. Also, it can be kind of funny because it's sarcastic. Muslim apologies, right? So sorry about Algebra World or Taj Mahal. Never been there? Think it's pretty? That was Muslim. Sorry about that. Or coffee. You like coffee? Thank a Muslim. Our bad. But one that gets repeated in this Muslim apologies hashtag is zero. Yeah, we invented zero. The concept of zero. And I've got to say, no. I am not buying it. I always hear this. And not only always with Muslims, they say it was invented in Babylonia or is invented in India. Come on, how could that be? Well, luckily, right here, I'm being joined by the guy who claims to have invented the concept of zero, the concept of nothing. How are you? I'm good. It's really good to be here. All right. Now, thanks for coming in to talk about your invention. No, really, it was nothing. (laughs) I see what you did there. That was good. Yeah, it's a little joke I like to do. So let me ask you this. Do you remember the time before there was nothing? Oh, yeah, sure, definitely. Do you remember the day, the very day before you thought of nothing? Oh, yeah, very clearly. Okay. Before you came up with this idea, what did you have in mind? Oh, it's just emptiness, really. Just like a wasteland of ignorance. Really? It was that bad. So what kind of ideas did they have before you thought of your idea? Well, really, I mean, they had no ideas. They really hadn't thought of anything. Aha! They hadn't thought of anything. Yeah, I mean, mean, they'd really thought of nothing. See? See, that's what I'm saying. They thought of nothing before nothing. No one invented nothing. Nothing was always there. Before nothing, there was nothing, so nothing came before nothing. I rest my case. Why, why are you yelling at me? I'm just a guest. You, you have to treat me as a guest. You know, I'm sorry, man. You're a figment of my imagination. You're also a prop of my circular reasoning. I do apologize. No, that's okay. Could you tell me what's on the show today? Sure. On the show today, in the spiel, a damn dirty shame. In the credits, I've never promoted the credits, but I'm doing it now. I'm announcing the pledge drive. I've talked about this in the credits in the past. I'm going to get into more details in today's credits. I'm also going to mention right now, in a week actually, in five days, two live shows. The Slate Culture Fest will be in L.A. on October 8th. I will be live in Brooklyn with Hang Up and Listen on October 8th. Go to slate.com slash live for all the details. Other segments on the show today. The unacknowledged cry of the modern parent. I'm such a bad mother. But first, on Monday, the court convenes. And here's our preview. There are six guys, three gals, six Catholics, three Jews, one black, one Hispanic, seven white. Average age, 68 and a half. Average color of work attire, black, always black. They are the Supreme Court. Their term starts on Monday, and Slate's court expert, Dahlia Lithwick, is here with a preview of that and other legal matters. Hello, Dahlia. Hi there, Mike. What's cool that the court's going to be considering? What's cool? If you want to, like, get agitated, this is probably not the term for you. Uh, it's all, at least thus far, 
kind of small, interesting cases, but no Hobby Lobby, no Voting Rights Act. Well, one case they definitely are taking is about Facebook, or at least the internet and threats. Tell me about that one. This is one that's super interesting because the court is going to have to circle back to two things that they have had a little bit of trouble with. One is this notion of the true threats doctrine, which mm-hmm. is an exception to the First Amendment speech protection if you're really, really threatening someone. And the court hasn't really looked at this issue since there was a cross-burning case. So now we're talking about true th- threats, uh, but we're also doing it on, in the context of the Internet. And the court gets very, very uh, confused sometimes when it talks about new technology. So this is a case that involved a man who was convicted of making really awful, horrendous statements on Facebook about his wife saying things like, hell hath no fury like a crazy man in a kindergarten class, and, quote, do you know that it's illegal for me to say I want to kill my wife? He took the position throughout all this that this was kind of an homage to Eminem, the rapper, and that this was just rap lyrics. But, of course, his wife was terrified, and he was sentenced to serve 44 months in jail. So the court is really going to have to think about whether the test for when you're making a threat is in many jurisdictions, it's whether you intended to threaten the person and to scare their face off or whether they simply reasonably felt scared, and the court has to pick between two different tests, but in a much, much larger way, I think they have to confront what it means in an Internet age to make a threat completely out of context that can be repeated elsewhere. It's just not quite comparable even to the cross-burning cases. Is there a legal doctrine associated with if you were the person in those threats, how would you feel? Is there a test to figure out what is reasonable in terms of feeling threatened? Well, it's called the sort of reasonable listener test, and most jurisdictions use that test. Most jurisdictions don't concern themselves uh, all that much with whether he meant to scare you. It's just, you know, you ask a jury, and in this case, they ask the jury, would you have been terrified if you had read what this guy was posting about his wife? And the jurors unequivocally said, yes, I would have been terrified. And I should just add as a coda, Mike, that the best brief in this case was filed by the rapper constituency who really, really feel that the important issue for the court to get to is that rap music is inherently violent. It's inherently performative, but it's fake. It's like wrestling, and you need to look at it under the kind of bigger understanding that rap music is often seen as threatening when, in fact, it's just art. So did that brief cite previous cases, or is it called sampling in there? (laughs) (laughs) It's an amazing brief that drops the F-bomb. I think I counted four times, which is a sure, sure way to win at the U.S. Supreme Court. Is Justice Sotomayor invited to wave her hands in the air as if she just didn't count? (laughs) (laughs) Nowhere in the brief, but maybe in a footnote. Implied, yes. Uh, Tell me about the Beards case before the court. So this one's actually going to be heard this week. Uh, This is a kind of an interesting case in that it's not all that interesting, but I think symbolically it is. Case is called Holt v. Hobbs. It has to do with a Muslim inmate in an Arizona prison who wants to grow a beard of a certain length. He says that that is religiously mandated uh, by his religion. And the prison comes back and says, look, we have a very compelling interest. That's a high, high, high stated interest in doing away with beards because people hide 
apparently drugs and razors in their beards and all kinds of contraband, and it makes it very, very hard for the prison to uh, keep track of what's going on. So this is kind of an interesting case because on the one hand, it's an easy case. 39 other states allow prisoners to grow beards. Arizona looks like an outlier. The court can just say, Arizona, let him have his beard. But I think it gives the court the opportunity to say, look, Hobby Lobby, it isn't just for evangelical Christians, it's for everybody, and we're going to give great religious deference to Muslims and other religions. And it's, I think, a way for the court to signal that all the parade of horribles that people said after Hobby Lobby, you know, that only some religions are going to get this deference and this respect, it's a way for the court to say, no, you know what, we really, really look out for the religious interests, even of you know, unpopular religions or minority religions. And so I think it's an easy way for the court to do some signaling after Hobby Lobby. I wouldn't even think of it like that. I mean, this is why they'll never appoint me to the Supreme Court. But to me, it seems like the silly rules doctrine. 39 states allow a prisoner to grow a beard. And the guy's talking about what, like a quarter inch beard? So a bunch of other prisons have said, yes, this isn't a problem. We have to have some accommodation of the religious. So it seems like a silly rule to ban the beard, just as in the case of the employers and Hobby Lobby, it seemed like a silly decision to say, oh, we will not cover contraception. But that's just me. You know, I'm not, I'm not a legal thinker. No, I think this case is, is not a hard case. This is one of those cases that you kind of put under the error correction column. The court mm-hmm. took it to fix a mistake in the lower courts. But I think... Again, I think that it does, in a moment after the town of Greece case last year, which was so fractious on religious lines, and after Hobby Lobby. Right, that was then the town of Greece case is where they would allow essentially prayers in the public forum. The town of Greece case where they said that a sectarian prayer led by uh, a member of the community before every town council meeting is perfectly permissible, even if in 96.79% of the cases it will be of only one religion. And the court blessed that, so to speak, and said it's not uh, a First Amendment problem uh, as long as nobody who is sitting in that town council meeting is being coerced or shamed. And so it really moved the goalposts in terms of what the Establishment Clause test was. Yeah. All right. And briefly, give me the state of some of these uh, state voting laws. Oh, it's all kinds of crazy. It's all kinds of crazy. We've got challenges, of course, with an election coming up to all sorts of, these aren't just voter ID laws. This is all sorts of efforts in various states, almost invariably uh, Republican-run legislatures, to curb voting in some way or another in advance of the November election. And so there are, you know, issues in Ohio, in North Carolina, in Texas, in Wisconsin. On Monday, as you you probably heard the Supreme Court upheld the Ohio law, which had been stayed. And so that's going to have the effect of, of quite dramatically scaling back early voting, which really, really cuts into the kind of souls to the polls drives in the black churches that were an effort to get black voters out to the polls. So that happened. Then we have the Seventh Circuit is bickering about the Wisconsin voter ID law. In the end, they just voted 5-5 that they couldn't rehear on bank a decision. And so that Wisconsin voter ID law, which according to the numbers I've seen, really may disenfranchise 
10% of registered voters in the states may be disenfranchised, but that law goes ahead. Wow. And then just this week, piling on, the Fourth Circuit has issued a stay, a preliminary injunction with respect to North Carolina's voter ID law. So that's also now up in the air. Uh, I think it's not a huge surprise when this was going before the Fourth Circuit, one of the judges hearing it said something to the effect of, why do you not want people to vote? So we knew that there were going to be pretty hostile to the North Carolina voter ID law. That has now been proven true by a two-to-one margin, at least for this instant. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, the North Carolina voter ID law uh, has been stayed. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts, all sorts of courts, for Slate.com. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you for having me. And if you like Dahlia here, how much would you love Dahlia on her own? We're announcing a special Dahlia Lithwick podcast on the opening of the SCOTUS term. Listen to this space and other Slate Enterprises to find out more. I have a list of demands. In fact, everyone has a list of demands. It's everything related to technology and ease. And what we demand, we get. That is modernity. Everything is on demand. Let's say you want a Diet Coke and you want a certain person's name on your can. You could get that because it's 2014 and it's America. You're listening to a podcast. You demand that you listen to me at 4 p.m., then you will listen to me at 4 p.m. If you demand that you hear me in time and a half speed, well, I don't specifically know about the demand, but I'm going to comply. And then we come to the post office. Why are you still going to the post office? Why are you still dealing with their limited hours? Why don't you get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Turns out anything you could do at the post office, you could do right from your desk with Stamps.com. You could buy stamps, print stamps. What letter sizes? All letter sizes. What about weighing packages? They'll send you a scale. Do you demand it? I don't care if you demand it. You're going to need it, and Stamps.com is going to give it to you. What you need to do is to use the promo code, the gist, on Stamps.com to qualify for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer. You get this digital scale I spoke of. You get up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in the gist. That's stamps.com and enter the gist. True story. I once gave the kids when they were babies gluten-free, lactose-free, nut-free, egg-free biscuit, organic, locally sourced, a teething biscuit. My son was eight months old at the time, but it wasn't soy-free. And at the moment that that was discovered, a team of tisking officials repelled from helicopters down to us. They took the baby away and they sent me to a re-education camp staffed entirely by empathetic purple dinosaurs. Okay. That is not actually a true story, but it feels true, right? It feels true to parents, to guilt-ridden, neurotic, self-doubting parents. So as always, we turn to the English for answers. The Kids Will Be Fine, Guilt-Free Motherhood uh, for Thoroughly Modern Women is written by Daisy Waugh, who joins me now. Hello, Daisy. Hi there. Hi. I always thought the Brits were more relaxed when it came to uh, parenting issues. They're not? Well, I mean, they used to be, didn't they? But I, I think it's gotten noticeably worse. I think, because I've got three children, the age gap between my second and third 
is quite big, and the difference between how fussy people became in those intervening years is noticeable. It's quite, uh, it's quite depressing, actually, how much less confident, how fussier parents have become. And, and as a result, I would say how much sort of softer and soppier their children are. And that's the shame of it, because usually as a parent, the second and third child, you're supposed to be able to relax a little, take it easier. I mean, that's the joke. Oh, yeah, the first child, we overchild. The second child, maybe we got it right. The third one's a free-range kid. Yeah, well, I mean, mine is, to be frank. <laughs> but, uh, most of it, I'm quite, I'm older than a lot of the mothers in the class. So a lot of the other children at school and things are all first children or whatever. So my child is, is incredibly free-range. But... Uh, her, her peer group is less free-range. I mean, every sort of moment of their day seems to be organized with skill-enhancing, you know, hobbies. It's all a bit it's grim, actually, I think. So your youngest, uh, more free-range child, how does your parenting show up? Is it a boy or girl, your third child? It, she's a girl, and yeah. she, she's very... I'm very, very, very liberal, and she is is very, very free. <laughs> We'll see if she gets a degree or anything at the end of it. But, I mean, she's certainly very cheerful. So, so, I mean, I've got increasingly, I mean, partly as a reaction to how fussy other people have become, I've become increasingly sort of sloppy about things like whether or not she's having five vegetables or one or seven or what television she's watching and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I'm, I, I've, I've almost sort of politically laissez-faire now with her. Yeah, so what is the state of television or screen time? You can't even say television. It's now screens. How do you navigate that in your home? This sort of idea, I mean, I haven't got a pattern. When she's looking lazy and she's clearly been sitting, looking irritable and watching television too long, I just take it away or switch it off. It's not a sort of, today's Tuesday, so from 5.15 and 5.21, we've organised for some nap time and kitty time and chatty time and walkie-talkie, watch the telly-welly time. It's not, it's just kind of, if everyone's busy, then she sneaks into the telly room and switches the telly on. And when I see it, I say, oh, for goodness sake, switch that stupid rubbish off. Yeah. <laughs> We move on to the next thing. I think the refrain that I always hear, oh, God, do I always hear this, and I know you do too. I'm such a bad mother. I'm such a bad mother. I mean, it's almost a tick. What are people trying to say? Are they trying to get the pat on the back, or is it just some throat-clearing neuroses? I think it's a throat-clearing neurosis. I think it's a permanent need for reassurance as well. But, I mean, I, it's sort of, I don't understand why. What I don't know, the basic thing, I don't understand is we all know that the vast majority of us love our children beyond all reason, beyond all anything, beyond we could ever imagine we were ever going to do. And our relationship with our children is, is unbreakable. And yet... Uh, there seems to be this increasing need to reassure everyone else who doesn't really care anyway, they're only pretending, that you love your child. Well, of course we love our children, and frankly, it's not really anybody else's business that we do or to what degree or in what way anyway. We love our children, and our relationship with our children is a wonderful, and man- on the whole, for most people, a magical thing. And I think that we, you know, we fuss over it so much that it, it, it sucks the joy out of it. So as I see people, and it just looks, you see them, they're being so... They're working so hard at their parenting that there doesn't seem to be any joy in it. Yes. And the other part of I love my child is it doesn't matter. I think a child psychologist will tell you that they rarely come across a parent who won't actually say and really believe I love my child. Or when you see a terrible mother on the news, she's often yelling, I love my children. It's true, actually. Yeah, exactly. Having murdered it. (laughs) I love my child. Don't tell me I don't. It's not about the love you give your child. And it's not about the amount of attention you give your child. It's about a lot of things. I think this is true in life that maybe for years, 
is we don't know about something. Maybe it's a, a disease. Maybe it's an affliction. And then all of a sudden, doctors or some experts figure it out. And of course, we pay so much attention to it then. And then after a decade, someone figures out that the best way to deal with whatever it is, is in the middle. Like, be aware of it, but don't overcorrect. A little watchful waiting. And I think parenting, that's happened to parenting. I think up through World War II, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I would doubt that there were huge differences in how parents parented from the year like 1400 through the year 1800. I doubt that there were huge differences. And then we started to find out about Dr. Spock and we started to find out about how kids learn. And there was this huge overcorrection. Plus, we stopped having 10 children per family. We started having two. Maybe someday will come when we pull back. Exactly. But I think also there's an element that we have much, I touch wood and everything, we have a much greater expectation of their mortality and things like that. So we dare to invest enormous, probably more love in them than we would have done when we had 10 and seven of them were going to die anyway. So they become these incredibly precious projects. I don't think it benefits anyone. That's, that's basically what I think. I don't think it, who does it benefit? It, all, what it really does is keep women feeling crushed and it smashes their self-confidence, which since the 60s or whatever, they've been doing quite well trying to build up and and um, and improve on, but this motherhood thing just knocks them right back into this sort of craven, desperately trying to please uh, selflessness, which which women know doesn't make them happy. Yeah, but what about dads? So that brings me to where I am, which is an extremely active parent. I do a ton of nurturing, and my boys are with me most of the time. So, what's your uh, assessment of dads? And all? Yeah, I think that this, these kind of parenting evangelical Nazis are coming after the fathers now as well, and I think fathers are beginning to beginning to feel the same pressure. I don't think that's great. I don't think anyone should feel the pressure. I don't think anyone gains from it. Uh, and I do think, just from watching the world go by, I think that my generation are much better fathers and probably better mothers as well. But I, I just think we should all take it easy. We don't need to do it as intensively as we do. I mean, the madness of teaching them how to talk through school interviews. and It's, it's sucking the beauty out of childhood and out of Yeah, what it is to be a child, I think, and actually what it is to be a parent. Well, you and I are both uh, writers and communicators. I actually literally teach them how not to be boring, like how to craft an anecdote that doesn't meander. Do you do anything like that? I say, I am dying. Actually, you know, my father did that to me once. I was telling him a story and I was just reaching the punchline. I must have been about seven or eight or something. We were walking somewhere and I had to run to keep up and I was just reaching the punchline. And he said, Days, wouldn't it be awful if I just suddenly dropped dead with boredom? I hope it sharpened up my anecdote telling, and I, and I sort of fairly, I'm fairly strict with my children, you know, and sort of whining and things. Yeah, you know, go away, don't make that disgusting noise, go away. Daisy Waugh, author of The Kids Will Be Fine, Guilt-Free Motherhood for Thoroughly Modern Women. Thank you, Daisy. Thank you very much. And now the spiel, a damn dangerous state. So I'm reading an article about monkeys, a monkey, one singular monkey. I think it was grabbed by the headline, The Marooned Baboon. Not since Benny the Bewildered Beast or Norman the Nonplussed Platypus did I confront such a stark picture of the natural world and befuddlement. So there's this baboon. He's been named Robinson. He got himself on an island in Zimbabwe. So he got separated from his tribe of baboons, his pack of baboons. He has enough to eat, but he's not a happy baboon out there on this island in Zimbabwe. And the Zimbabweans refused to intervene. Some tourists tried to lure him off the islands with a boat of bananas. 
no go, no go. Then on the BBC website where I was reading this, it had this part. Sooner or later, though, Robinson will either sink or swim. Upstream lies the Kariba Dam. And if a heavy rainy season means they have to open its sluice gates, Robinson's Island will be submerged, but he may not be the only victim. The Kariba Dam is in a dangerous state. In the last 50 years, the torrents from the spillway have eroded the bedrock, carving a vast crater that's undercut the dam's foundations. Engineers are warning without urgent repairs, the whole dam will collapse. If that happened, a tsunami-like wall of water would rip through the Zambezi Valley. The torrent would overwhelm Mozambique's Kahora Basa Dam and knock out 40% of southern Africa's hydroelectric capacity. Whoa! I know this is a foreign place. I know this is a hypothetical. I know this probably has been reported, and it took me to read a story of a monkey, a forsaken baboon, to find out about this. But all I could say is, Damn! Damn! I wish they were built better. The more I looked into it, it seems as if this dam's problems aren't even the fault of the dam engineers. It's the dam concept in the first place. Environmentalists everywhere have been talking about how dams make rivers less healthy, how they kill people, how they displace the poor. Thayer Scudder, 84 years old, he's been in this dam business for 58 years, and he's had a dam change of heart. In the 50s, in Zambia and Zimbabwe, 60,000 people were displaced to build the Kariba Dam. Those are the Tonga people. And they have become poor and unemployed and alcoholic, and they're poachers, and they do whatever they can to survive. Their lives were ruined by this dam. And this is the dam that could break soon. Scudder also consulted on a dam in Laos that was finished four years ago, and since that time, he's come to think of that dam as a mistake too. And it's It's not just Scudder. Three British researchers did a cost-benefit analysis of all dams. It was called, Should We Build More Large Dams? The Actual Costs of Hydropower Mega Project Development. They concluded, quote, in most countries, large hydropower dams, in most countries, large hydropower dams will be too costly in absolute terms and take too long to build to deliver a positive risk-adjusted return. Damn! 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 I wish the U.S. were any better. But it's not. The 1970s, bummer as they were, you may have forgotten this, but during the 70s, there was a string of dam accidents. February of 72, the Buffalo Creek Valley Dam in West Virginia killed 125 people. The Rapid City Dam in South Dakota took somewhere between 33 and 237 lives. Thousand homes, $60 million worth of damage. Dam in Idaho killed 11 people, untold amount of property damage. 77, dam in Pennsylvania, Laurel Run killed 40 people. Another dam, Toccoa Falls, Georgia, 77, 39 college students and staff. So President Carter back then ordered the federal government to get involved. They recommended and implemented some safety overhauls. But that was, you know, 30 years ago, which gets me to saying, damn, Sophie says, damn, damn, I wish I could be more optimistic, but I can't. The American Society for Civil Engineers issues an infrastructure report card. Our dams get a D and not for dam, for poor, as in one step above failing. The dams are too damn old. Average age, 52. Number of dams in America, 84,000. And a big problem is that a lot of the dams were built to be low-hazard dams. But since the time they were built, people move in and they're now high-hazard dams because there are so many more potential victims in their path. There are 2,000 deficient high-hazard dams in the U.S. It'll cost $21 billion to repair these dams, and that's a lot of damn money. 
Damn, Sophie, I wish you were still on the pop charts. Your song, this song, not only had Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover as lyrics, but had this lyric too. This monkey can't stand to see you black and blue. I give you something sweet each time you come inside my jungle book. Which brings me back to Robinson, the maroon baboon. I can't believe he will ever be saved. But more importantly, I'm beginning to doubt we humans will either. And that is a shame. A damn shame. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of The Gist. She is said to have invented the concept of head, shoulder, knees, and toes before it was head, shoulders, haunches, and withers. It was too confusing. Chris Wade engineered all of the last two days' worth of shows. He invented the phrase, I'll never get those last two minutes of my life back. He was the first guy to say that. He said it about an instant replay of a referee's spot in an NFL game. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He invented the concept of give a penny, take a penny. His inflation-adjusted update, give a 20, take a 20, has yet to catch on, and in fact, it's slowly bankrupting him. Quickly, quickly. Slate.com slash gist email is the way to get the daily email. We're also on Yo, get that app and sign up for podcast. We're on Facebook, Facebook.com slash slate gist. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. Our email is the gist at slate.com. And now the pledge drive. We don't want you to give or take a penny, except for the phrase penny for your thoughts. We're more interested, though, not in your thoughts, but in your actions and deeds. Indeed, to do this, you will help the gist in immeasurable ways. And what I want you to do is subscribe someone to the gist don't just tell people about it grab their phone whatever their device is and actively subscribe them and the reason we're doing this now is that the new iphones have the podcast app built in and people are wondering what is that or maybe they're ignoring that or they're saying what is a podcast and if you listen to a podcast i want you to give them the gift of the gist rest their phone away from them if you hear these words in the next month i just got a new iphone 6 that's your cue say hey let me grab it Hey, can I see the podcast app? Let me sign you up for the gist. You might want to show them how to sign up for other podcasts, Slate podcasts, other great podcasts. And then if you sign them up for a podcast, you'll be paying the gift forward. And I do have to say that other forms of media have advantages, like a TV's in everyone's home and a radio's in everyone's car and newspapers, poor newspaper. But they they do have a hundred year head start. Here's what podcasts have. Podcasts have loyalty. And if we don't ask our loyal listeners to act with loyalty, we're squandering the best thing about podcasts. So please, please help, and we'll be around here for a while if we do. Thank you for helping us in this pledge drive, and thanks for listening.